Logging provides raw data that can be abstracted into higher-level information. Logs are generated at every layer of infrastructure, physical host, virtual machine, container, pod, and Kubernetes cluster. Logs are generated by network proxies, edge servers, and API requests. And there's far too much logging information to be read by humans. Log messages need to be refined into statistical metrics that can be put into charts. A high volume of log messages can be used to detect anomalies across a system. If unusual behavior is present in a system, the relevant log messages can be identified and sent to a human operator for that operator to triage and respond to. Kalyan Ramanathan works at Sumo Logic, a platform for log management and continuous intelligence. Sumo Logic recently published the Continuous Intelligence Report, which is based on a study of over 2,000 technology companies. It's a useful data set for anyone who is looking to understand adoption of cloud products and Kubernetes, and it can be found at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic. Kalyan joins the show to discuss log management, continuous intelligence, and the data that Sumo Logic has gathered in the Continuous Intelligence Report. Full disclosure, Sumo Logic is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Kalyan Ramanathan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thank you very much. Today we're talking about logging and log management and some higher level discussions beyond that. To start with the idea of logging, logging is raw data. That raw data gets abstracted into higher level information. Logging is often high dimensional, it's high volume. Give some examples of common logging information and how that high-volume, high-dimensional data gets aggregated into something more abstract and usable. Yeah, that's a great question, Jeffrey. Let me start out by explaining what a log is uh, for many of your listeners. So a log is essentially a record of you know noteworthy events that are generated from software applications, operating systems, infrastructure, you name it. Right. And log, you know, it essentially keeps tracks of what is happening behind the scenes of the application and the system so that, you know, you have a detailed list of, you know, events that are happening. So when you have a malfunction, you can go back, you can look up your logs, you can see what is working, not working, etc. Now, every application stack component, right? Right from the application to the infrastructure to the, you know, the platforms may be on-prem or or cloud for that matter that the application is deployed on are essentially emitting logs. And what these logs do is, uh, as I mentioned before, provides the ability to understand how these components of the application are working. So applications are, logs are typically written out by app developers and uh, they are tracking just about anything that is happening within, within an application. It could be a login, it could be a transaction, it could be errors or warnings that are happening in the application. Infrastructure logs are generally come prepackaged from infrastructure vendors, and they generally give you visibility into the health and the performance and any other interesting events that are associated with uh, infrastructure itself. My sense is that while logs have been used for as long as we've been doing software engineering, the idea of aggregating all of this logging data and storing it and making sense of it 
is a newer phenomenon. It, it has something to do with the cloud. But I'd like to get your, your perspective. You've definitely been in the industry for longer than I have. You've seen how the world looked pre and post cloud. Was log management a thing before the cloud? Log management has been around for a long time, right? But it has existed in a very different form than perhaps what it exists today with the advent of, uh, you know, cloud and, uh, you know, high-scale infrastructure. You know, this notion of infrastructure, you know, particularly network devices and operating systems, writing logs, and perhaps using a syslog type protocol, you know, dropping logs into a centralized store that you could perhaps query and, uh, you know, get some visibility and perhaps do some troubleshooting has been around for a long time. This is not a, uh, you know, 20, 2010 or a 2020 phenomenon. Uh, this has existed from the days of, you know, when Cisco routers and switches and whatnot have, you know, have, have been a common commonplace infrastructure within a data center. What has changed, I would say, in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years is the ability now to actually collect all these data at very large scale, and then more importantly, the ability to, to analyze this data at an even larger scale so that now you can, one, you know, identify needles in a haystack when you're running into an application malfunction or a security issue within your application, or two, you can do very long-term trending of this data so that you can understand you know, how your application is perhaps performing over, let's say, the last one year, or, you know, how many users are you getting to your application in the last six months? Where are these users coming from? What are they doing with your application? Or perhaps look at, you know, security incidents that you may have had in your in your application going back months and months of time, right? So what the cloud provides you and what these high-scale storage and analytics engines are providing you is the ability to indeed do this at scale, which was not quite available once upon a time. So, you know, once upon a time, log management used to be the purview of maybe a team of five or six people. Now we have customers of products like Sumo Logic, uh, where we have hundreds or even thousands of people who are actively and concurrently using these solutions. And so the trends of the cloud have made modern log management solutions possible. The cloud has also changed how infrastructure itself is laid out and how we're consuming software. You have more layers of infrastructure. You have physical hosts, you have VMs, you have Kubernetes, you have pods and containers, you have black box proprietary tools like DynamoDB that you don't really have a ton of introspection into. With all this heterogeneity. Can you describe some of the best practices for how to monitor all of these different layers and all of these different systems? I mean, it's an interesting question. The basic hypothesis, right, of monitoring starts out with visibility, right? There are multiple terms that people have applied to to visibility. Some people call it observability. Some people call it transparency. You name it. But at the heart of it, right, you cannot manage what you don't see and what you don't understand. So the essence of all of this starts out with, I need to bring back all the signals, maybe logs and metrics and traces and you name it, into a 
into a central repository so that I can understand the various components that makes up my application, all the way from my application to the platform as a service component to the infrastructure as a service component, you know, a la the hosts and the VMs and the and the containers that you just mentioned. So the essence of monitoring and the essence of understanding an application is that visibility. The, the next thing that you have to do once you get control of visibility, once you have a, a you know a good understanding of the application is to is to start monitoring the application. And what that means is is to understand what is normal and what is abnormal in the behavior of the application itself. Now there are multiple techniques by which you know you can do this. You can do it via static methods, you can do it via dynamic methods. And there are even machine learning or AI based approaches to to understanding what is normal and what's not normal about an application. And then finally Finally, when you have identified, you know, an abnormal condition, obviously that's where you need to take some action. You need the right tools and the right analytics, the right troubleshooting systems in place so that, you know, you can very quickly understand the, the root cause of the problems and then you can fix this, those, those problems itself. Now, this problem has always existed. It has, and the basic process has, has always been the same, whether it is on-prem or the cloud. What changes in the cloud is exactly what you said, Jeffrey. It's that you know the a lot of things change in the cloud, right? Starting from the cloud platform to the infrastructure that you deploy to the architectures of the applications that you're driving to even the teams that are responsible for keeping the application healthy, secure, you name it. And the complexity of the cloud environment, the newness of the cloud environment, the number of components in this cloud environment, that's what makes this the act and the task of keeping cloud applications so much harder. And with like the addition of a system that allows me to have some observability over my infrastructure, how am I using that? Like who are the people that are using a log management system? Who are the constituents? Is it, is it just engineers or is it also product managers? Does everybody on the team want to be using this kind of observability software? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's interesting. Um, here at Sumo Logic, right, we see many uh, personas who use the, the data that comes from applications, uh, you know, signals from applications such as log, right? We obviously see, you know, DevOps teams and SRE teams that are very interested in monitoring and ensuring the performance and availability of applications. Logs are also at the heart of ensuring the security and compliance posture of an application. So if you were to walk into a typical, you know, enterprise today and look up the security operations team, chances are that they are looking at logs and events coming from these applications to identify security threats, to respond to these threats, to ensure the compliance state, maybe PCI, HIPAA, you name it, for the application itself. But, you know, we're also starting to see uh, logs being used in, in in other interesting ways. You know, a lot of the development tools, uh, anything from, you know, GitHub to CI, CD tools to, to even deployment tools are write out logs. So if I am a VP of engineering and I, I want to get complete visibility into my 
DevOps process, you know, the number of pulls that I am making from GitHub, the number of times I'm writing, uh, I'm running my CI CD workflows, the number of deployments that I'm doing to my production environment. Chances are that, you know, a log management system that integrates to many of these systems can indeed provide you that complete end to end visibility. Finally, we're seeing logs, uh, you know, being used in many newer applications. For example, IoT applications. Uh, you know, we have customers who are uh, who write out IoT logs, and guess what? If you can bring these IoT logs into a centralized system, you can learn a lot about your IoT systems. You can see where these systems are being deployed. You can see how they are working or not working, for that matter. And it provides you a lot of visibility into not just your your application, but also the business that is being driven by your application. You mentioned anomalies a little bit earlier. You want your log management system to detect anomalies because you cannot manually look at everything that is coming in to your log management system. I mean, that's that's the whole point. But the problem with out-of-the-box anomaly detection is that anomalies vary from infrastructure to infrastructure. It might make sense for some companies to have a system with a QPS of 10 billion per minute and uh, you know some other system if 10 if it hits 10 billion QPS per minute then that's you know dramatically bad or I guess QPS is queries per second so per minute doesn't even make any sense but in any case anomaly is kind of a subjective phenomenon and anomaly depends on what the infrastructure is so how do you want to define anomalies for a a log management or a observability platform. Yeah, I think you're hitting on a a problem that is that's been around for a long time, and it's many observability systems, right? And it doesn't have to be logs in particular. I mean, you know, even systems that collect signals and metrics from other from infrastructure and applications have have long been stymied by these problems. There are some standard ways by which you know you can try and address this, right? Let, let me sort of walk to you through the, the different approaches here. There is the age-old way of you know setting up what I call a you know static thresholds, right? And uh, static threshold shoulders where, you know, you may say that, look, if my infrastructure produces more than X number of warnings or errors per minute, fire off an alarm. Or if my application has a latency of, let's say, you know, more than 20 seconds, fire off an alarm, right? Um, So the, the there are many systems that sort of work with these static anomaly-based thresholds, and that's been around for a long time. And, and the problem is exactly what you mentioned, right? Which is, how do you know what is that right threshold to set? How do you know if 10 seconds is the right threshold, or should it be 20? Should it be 30? I mean, it's that's pretty much dependent on the on the infrastructure, the application, the particular use case, you name it, right? We've seen systems sort of obviously improve from the static anomaly-based detection mechanism. And systems generally do that uh, through one of two ways, right? One of two ways. One is they apply dynamic thresholds. And dynamic thresholds is where the the system itself understands as to what is the, the right threshold that needs to be applied. Uh, now, this can come through multiple mechanisms. It can either, or multiple uh, methods, I should say. You can do this based on historical basis. So for example, say you are an e-commerce site and, uh, you know, you, you know, want to set threshold for, let's say, 
10 a.m. in the morning and let's say 6 p.m. in the or 7 p.m. in the evening, right? Typical e-commerce sites generally will see more traffic uh, a little little day, later in the day, given that people are going home. Now they're going to be transacting on this e-commerce system, you name it. The time or, or temporal system can look at, you know, patterns of usage of the system over time and can apply, you know, thresholds based on patterns of usage. So every day at 6 p.m., I expect a certain threshold or a certain performance benchmark for my application. And, uh, you know, I can go back over the last one week, I can go back over the last one month, and then I can arrive at what that threshold ought to be. And I can set that as a benchmark. So here's an example of an automatic automatic threshold or benchmark that is set by the system itself. Now, Another way of setting up these dynamic anomalies, you know, is is by arriving at it through a statistical means. So what you can do is you can look at, you know, a typical uh, data set and then you can arrive at what is the normal for that data set and then set your threshold as a certain standard deviation from that data set. So, for example, you know, if you expected a certain performance at 6 p.m. every day, look at your last 10 hours, arrive at what is a normal for the last 10 hours, and then say anytime you have, you know, more than one, two, three configurable standard deviation from that from that point in time, you set up a threshold and you set up an alert as a result of this. So there are multiple ways, as you can see, by which, you know, you can set up a, a threshold and, and thus identify an anomaly, uh, you know, within your platform. Now, the most recent way, and I would say the the way that most people are starting to you know experiment with anomaly management right now is through is by using advanced technologies like like ML and AI, where you can apply machine learning technologies to to now start to identify what is normal and what's abnormal. This is obviously you know brand new ground, you know still an experimentation phase. Some of these techniques work, some of them don't work that well. But we are starting to see more and more companies now start to work with ML and AI te- uh, technologies to to identify anomalies in their system. Can you give an example of how you would want your your log management system or your observability system to expose machine learning functionality? Yeah, let me give you a good example of how Sumo Logic does this, right? You know, Sumo Logic collects a lot of logs, tens of terabytes of logs from unique customers, right? So it's impossible to sift through tens of terabytes of logs. This is on a daily basis to to identify, you know, patterns of things that you may see in a log, right? So what Sumo Logic does is, uh, you know, apply uh, machine learning uh, technologies like clustering, for that matter, to to then uh, very quickly you know, summarize these logs into patterns. So imagine a, a log data set that may have, you know, let's say 30 to 40 to 50,000 logs that may be arriving into your system by applying a technology, a proprietary technology, what we call log reduce in our in our system. We can quickly now summarize these 30 to 40,000 logs into, you know, about 10 to 20 patterns. So rather than sifting through each one of these logs or trying to search through these logs and identifying this, what might be happening in this log set, you are better off by looking at these at these 10 log patterns, uh, identifying that, you know, summarizing that, you know, eight out of these 10 log patterns are perfectly acceptable and normal for your system. But aha, you know, these two things that were collected by Sumo Logic and that were reduced by Sumo Logic into patterns 
are indeed unique log patterns. And perhaps those are the things that you should be paying attention to as you are trying to troubleshoot a perhaps a problem in your system. So that's a perfect example of how machine learning can be applied to to you know large scale problems, in this case uh, log analytics, to help you quickly identify you know the needle in a haystack and then focus on just the right things rather than get uh, drowned by the by the complexity and the scale of your log analytics problems. The vision that your company Sumo Logic has for how log management and observability tools and metrics tools of today evolve is something that you call continuous intelligence. Can you describe what continuous intelligence means? Yeah, I mean, it sort of goes back to uh, the discussion that we have we have been having, Jeffrey. What we are seeing is that many of our customers are, you know, making the move to modern applications and to cloud-based systems. And uh, when you run your applications in, in cloud systems, you know, what we are seeing is that just about everything changes with your application, right? Your your core platform is different. Your, your application infrastructure is different. Your architecture is different. The teams that are involved in, in this management are different in some sense. You know, you're going from dev, sec, and ops team that were unique teams, different teams, silo teams to perhaps even... DevSecOps teams, where there is one team that is responsible for for managing this application. The one other thing that we see in this world is that your applications are also starting to be developed and released at a much, much faster pace than you ever did before. So what we are seeing is that, and you know, this is our hypothesis, and this is the company thesis, I should say, is that you need continuous intelligence, you know, to build, run, and secure these applications in a different way and in a better way. So what SumoLogic's continuous intelligence platform enables you to do is to essentially provide you that continuous intelligence so that you know you can manage these applications better, that you can build, run, and secure these applications so that and better and meet the expectations of the business. Whenever there is kind of a new term like this, like continuous intelligence, it's often summarizing some lower level technologies that have come before it. Can you identify what are the specific technologies that are composed into continuous intelligence? What make makes that possible? Yeah, I mean, at, at the heart of continuous intelligence for SumoLogic, right, is our service itself. Our service, the SumoLogic service, runs in the cloud, and it's a cloud-native service, and it's really the underpinning of uh, what delivers continuous intelligence to our customers. Our cloud-native service leverages every aspect of the cloud that we run on. We are cloud-native on AWS, Amazon Web Services, and uh, what it does is to provide our customers incredible scalability and elasticity. So our, our service collects data from you know your applications, your applications and your infrastructures, which can run anywhere, right? It, these applications may sometimes run in the cloud, may sometimes uh, run on-prem, may sometimes be a, in in a hybrid environment. And because we run in the cloud, uh, very much like like a Salesforce, all you have to do is 
send us your data. We, our service collects this data and, you know, you can start to analyze this data, you know, in real time uh, within our service. I mentioned that our service runs in the cloud and therefore it provides incredible scalability and elasticity. And, uh, you know, let me sort of emphasize that a little bit. You know, the, the problems that we are trying to address are big data problems. The problems that we are trying to address are, are, are problems where scale and elasticity is, is very important. You know, we have customers who who have, you know, dynamic apps that some days may see, you know, let's say 10,000 users and other days may see a million users. When you see that level of dynamism in application and application usage, the machine data that comes from these applications, the signal that, that come from these applications also varies dramatically. And therefore, if you need a management system that can collect all these signals and that can you know, analyze all these signals, the management should, system should also scale with the applications and with the usage of the applications. So that's what the Sumo Logic service provides because we run in the cloud, we can you know, leverage the power of AWS, the cloud that we run on, and can support our customers and you know, whatever dynamic load that, that they may want to you know, use within the Sumo Logic service. The one last thing I, I do want to make you know, highlight here is that you know, the Sumo Logic service, you know, while it runs in the cloud, is built with security-first principles in mind. Right. So we started 10 years ago building our service in AWS. We realized that our customers and their data is extremely sensitive and extremely critical, you know, for our customers. So we built a, a, a service with security first principle. So our, our service is SOC 2, Type 2 compliant. It's got all the right attestations, including PCI, HIPAA, GDPR. We are FedRAMP ready. So, so we make sure that we take utmost care of our customers and their data. So there was a report that Sumo Logic put out fairly recently about continuous intelligence, and it was just basically aggregating some survey data, some conversations that you had had with customers. What's your sense of how infrastructure usage is changing in 2019? What are the biggest changes that you're seeing? It's a great question. And, you know, let me sort of just give you a bit of a background on this report, and then, and then we can talk about some of the changes that we did see and were highlighted in this report, right? Look, I mean, the fundamental reason we put out this report was to, was to really provide, you know, our customers and practitioners at large a roadmap of, of how to build, run, and secure mission-critical applications in, in cloud environments. And, you know, the, the way I always talk about this report is that, you know, had we had this report 10 years ago when we were starting to build our applications in the cloud, we would have loved to learn, you know, as to how do companies build and run applications in the cloud. We didn't have that back then. What we have learned over the last 10 years, working with over 2,000 customers, I would say almost 75% of them running mission-critical applications in the cloud, is that the people who build applications in the cloud think about their infrastructure differently. They think about architecting their, their applications differently. And you know, as a management system that, that manages these applications and this infrastructure, we have a unique vantage point, a unique visibility into to how these customers are, are doing what they do. And so what we have done is collected this data, anonymized this data, and then uh, presented this in a form that you know, every practitioner can perhaps use, learn, and implement in their own environment. Now, 
You know, in terms of the report itself, right, I think what we saw were, were, were really five key observations. First and foremost, what we see is that, you know, the, the whole notion of multi-cloud uh, environments, it's starting to happen. It's, it's becoming more and more real now. When we did this report, you know, the first time around in, in 2016, you know, those were the early days of multi-cloud deployments. Uh, you know, there was one cloud to, to speak of at that point that was AWS. Azure was just getting out of the gate. Uh, GCP was still very small. And what we can tell you is that, you know, things have changed quite dramatically right now. I mean, we have almost almost 13% of our customers who are running multi-cloud deployment, you know, applications running on AWS, Azure, or GCP for that matter. So, so multi-cloud is not just a, a buzzword. I think uh, there is uh, there is definitely some some reality in multi-cloud. The other thing that we that we saw in this report is that many of our customers are starting to adopt Kubernetes. And you know, Jeffrey, I mean, this is. I'm sure, you know, somewhat surprising, right? Well, I should say surprising and not surprising at the same time. You know, Kubernetes is still a fairly new environment. And yet what we see is that one in five customers of, of Sumo Logic and AWS are already using Kubernetes. What is also interesting is that, you know, when customers are thinking about multi-cloud deployments, you see a sharp adoption in Kubernetes. So if you think about a customer, you know, running on just AWS, as I mentioned before, one in five is using Kubernetes. On the other hand, if you think of a customer who is perhaps deploying on all three environments, AWS, Azure, and GCP, we almost see eight in 10. That's like, you know, four in five, you know, however you want to slice it, uh, that, that use Kubernetes. You know, the takeaway from this is that, you know, Kubernetes is becoming this sort of grand equalizer and a key enabler of multi-cloud deployments. So if you are an enterprise architect today and if you want to build an application that is no longer beholden to one cloud, AWS, Azure, or GCP, it would behoove you to, to think about, you know, using Kubernetes as your underlying platform because that gives you the ability to, to port your application, you know, rather seamlessly from, from one cloud to the other. Now, I got a few more observations, but in the interest of time, Jeffrey, let me know how, how you want to... Uh, no, I'd love to next. hear more. Tell me more. Because oh, this sure. is, okay. I mean, what I thought was interesting was about this report was there was a lot of information that, that was aggregates of, I think, what, like 100 or 150 companies, something like that? Oh, no, let me definitely correct you on that. I mean, this is 2,000 companies, companies, right? So 2,000 accounts. So it's a rather a large and statistically, what's the right word, accurate uh, sample size. And, you know, we've gone to great lengths and pains to ensure that we only put out data for which, you know, we have a statistical significance in our data. So the data that that we have presented in this report are are quite, you know, I, I would say they're the, quite the norm for, for most enterprises and, you know, something that, you know, every practitioner out there should should definitely pay attention to. Uh, but let me continue. In the you know, since uh, since you wanted to hear more, point number three, and this is something that anybody who goes to AWS reInvent, uh, you know, AWS's big show will definitely uh, relate to. So we all go to AWS reInvent, and you know, here is AWS announcing, you know, yet you know, another 15 services or 20 services for that matter, you know, pushing the envelope of all the stuff that you can do in AWS. So, so there's always this question. So AWS is this relentless engine that is, that is pushing innovation every year. How many people do adopt these, these, these new services that are coming at such a fast clip from AWS, right? So, so looking at our data, what we realize is that while AWS is indeed 
pushing out a lot of innovative capabilities. The core services that are adopted by many of these AWS customers are, are still very limited, right? What we found out is that on average, and this is looking at you know over 1,500 customers of ours who are using AWS, on average, we see that only 15 of these 150 AWS services are, are really adopted by a large plethora of these AWS customers, right? So customers go to AWS, you know, this is sort of the, the hypothesis coming out of this data, this data point is that customers like the innovation pace at AWS. Customers like the fact that AWS is, you know, pushing the envelope when it comes to, you know, releasing new capabilities, providing new, you know, services to enterprises. But then a vast majority of them are still in the early phases, still in the you know innings two to three, if uh, so to speak, of of adopting these services. We saw a few customers, a few enterprises, I should say, who have adopted many, many, many AWS services. But those are far and few in between. A large majority of these of these customers end up you know going to AWS for their infrastructure as a service platform the EC2 service the S3 you know the cloud formation the the RDS and and the IAM the identity management services and you know are are still cutting their teeth at these basic services you know the fact that AWS offers all these cutting edge services obviously is a is a good carrot and a good icing in the cake uh, but the majority of these customers are still you know using just the core of the cake at this point Point number four, let's talk about serverless. And everybody is talking about serverless. Serverless is being proclaimed as the as the next programming paradigm uh, that's going to change everything about the cloud and uh, systems and how you use systems. And what we are starting to see is that, you know, at least in the AWS environment, right, uh, serverless has reached a tipping point. What we, AWS's serverless implementation is called Lambda. And what we see is that the Lambda adoption has indeed grown up dramatically over the last few years. In 2017, which was the you know, second year when we were doing this report, we saw 12% adoption of Lambda. Right now in 2019, we see almost 36% adoption of Lambda. That means one in three enterprises that are running, you know, applications in AWS today are using Lambda or serverless in some way, shape or form. So that is uh, an interesting data point, you know, and I think that sort of tells you that people are, 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 are really experimenting and deploying and implementing, you know, serverless technologies at a, at a much faster clip now. I, I do have one last point, and, and this is sort of uh, switching gears from more of the architecture to, let's say, uh, talking about security technologies within within the cloud. So, so Jeffrey, I'm, I'm sure you must have heard that security and cloud security is perhaps the number one obstacle or blocker or challenge as uh, enterprises think of adopting cloud. And, you know, there are, there is some some merit to it. Uh, I mean, you know, enterprise SOC teams are used to seeing their infrastructure. They're used to, you know, counting their infrastructure. They're used to seeing it in their in their data center. So, so that you know that that gives them the comfort of of their data being secure within the confines of that data center. And now moving everything to the cloud uh, may just bring up uh, these concerns that maybe my data 
is in a place that I don't control. And, you know, what happens to security then? So what we are starting to see is that, again, this is within the purview of AWS, a lot of the enterprises that are deploying their applications in the cloud and in AWS are starting to use many of the services that AWS offers in order to better uh, secure their, their applications in the cloud. So AWS has these, these interesting technologies. You know, I'll sort of rattle out a few names here. It's called CloudTrail. CloudTrail, think of it as, you know, providing the, you know, who, what, when, where, how of access of APIs and services within AWS. AWS has, you know, offers VPC flow logs, which gives you visibility into who is accessing your systems. AWS has a new technology called Guard Duty, which provides you visibility into the uh, the security state of your AWS applications. And what we are starting to see is that, you know, many Sumo Logic customers who are deployed in AWS are are using these services and are using these services. At a fairly significant rate. So, so that gives us confidence that enterprises are indeed paying attention to security as they are moving to the cloud. They are, they are building in the right you know, capabilities. They are you know, using the right services that are offered by the cloud platform vendors themselves. And you know, all of this obviously uh, portends well for applications that are running in the cloud. Um, so SOC teams, uh, you know, if, if there's anything that you should take away from, from this podcast is that, you know, security in the cloud is a little different, but it is, you know, it's definitely doable. And there are all the right capabilities available from vendors like AWS and also from vendors, third-party vendors like Sumo Logic that can ensure the security of your apps and infrastructures uh, in the cloud. I assume you've, you've been to reInvent? Absolutely. We do go to reInvent. There's a big contingent of Sumo Logic folks who go to reInvent every year. So I'm going for the first time this year, and just after seeing pictures and hearing stories, it sounds completely overwhelming. <laughs> do, you, do you have any advice for surviving reInvent? Oh, man. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. <laughs> and get out every every now and then uh, from... From the booths and from the from the sessions, what can I tell you? Huh? But that, but then you know that applies to Las Vegas as a whole. You know, reInvent has become the technology mecca to be and to go to. You know, I, I'm dating myself here, but I you know is it more more so than CES at this point? CES is a it's a different kind of show, right, Jeffrey? So CES is a bit more consumer oriented. You know, I'm sure if you are selling the latest uh, IoT gadget or a phone, you know, a CES or an MWC, uh, the show in Barcelona is, is perhaps a show to be at. If you're doing B2B applications, if you are targeting anybody who is in the dev world, the DevOps world, a, a site reliability engineer, or, or perhaps even a security person. You know, reInvent is, is, is definitely the place to be. The vibe in that place, the energy in that place is off the charts, heralds the where technology is today and where technology is headed, you know, for the next few years. You know, rightly or wrongly, you know, AWS is the 8,000-pound gorilla in the cloud space. They're building cool stuff. They have some amazing customers. It's a, it's, this may sound like an advertisement for AWS, but the company, you know, does it really innovate well. As Sumo Logic, who's deployed in AWS, you know, we like the innovation that they bring to the IT world, and we like what our customers are able to do on, on AWS, too. It sure is amazing. I mean, I think it's a sign of of what Amazon does right that 
it's like as a byproduct of the accidental business that they created with AWS, they created like a billion dollar conference industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is it? I, I hear they're on a run rate of 25 billion or whatever right now. So um, For reInvent? Uh, no, no, I, I meant uh, AWS as a business itself, uh, not, not, oh, not oh, okay. reInvent. I, I, I don't know what's the, the actual revenue. I mean, you got to imagine it's pretty profitable. Oh, I, I'm almost certain it's it's profitable given the number of vendors like like ourselves who are there and the amount of money that we spend in terms of, you know, demonstrating, you know, getting boots, you know, sending people to that event. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's a profitable venture for AWS. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, right, I mean, this is a place where uh, where you meet the people who are building your, your next-gen apps, right? Whether it's Fender, the guitar player who is building their apps on, you know, their the next-gen mobile app on AWS, whether it's Airbnb, whether it's, you know, Netflix, or whether it's, you know, a tiny little company that's, uh, you know, with like three guys in a garage. You know, today, nobody would question you if you were to put your credit card and, you know, build your first app on AWS. So AWS has, and reInvent has become the show to to go to, to see what's going on in the in the IT world for sure. All right, well, as we begin to wrap up, I have a few other high-level subjects I want to discuss. So the changing usage prototype of a log management system or an observability system. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but the fact that today not only do you have engineers and operations people working with your log management tool, your metrics tool, but you have data scientists, you have customer service people, you have product managers, you might even have marketing people. As these different constituencies want access to this logging data or maybe they want access to the post-processed log metrics how does that change the interface and how does it change the product design yeah that's a good question we are in early i would say you know phases of understanding it ourselves but what i think what sumologic is starting to see is that you know, in many organizations, you know, our customers are not just the, the the typical people, right? I mean, the SREs and the DevOps people who, or or the security people who who use our systems, but they are also these product people, like exactly like you said, or customer support people who may not have the sophisticated understanding of our query language, may not have the ability to create dashboards uh, and alerts and and other things that you know you would you would. Take for granted if you are someone who lives and you know breathes within the Simologic system. So, what we are starting to see more and more of is two modes of operation. One is this notion of what I call is templatized offers, right? Where you know I, as an administrator of the product or as an expert user of the product, I may templatize uh, what I may want to do in the product. And then expose a, a few very simple to configure things within my product and then offer it to a larger swath of users. So, for example, imagine if I have, let's say, 300 customer support people and, you know, I need to support these 300 customer support people and they need to look into the Sumo Logic system every time somebody calls in with a problem. They need to look up an ID and uh, they need to see what's what's wrong with the product or the or the system at that point. Rather than expose the, the Sumo Logic query language to, to all of these 300 people who I'm sure uh, they come with, you know, different knowledge and, you know, different skill sets, what we can then do is offer a templatized uh, 
interface or dashboard where all you have to do is drop the product ID. And when you drop the product ID in, you know, you or, or the customer ID in, you get all the details about the, the customer, the product, the usage of the product, the, the logs from the product, the errors and the debugs and the warning messages in the product itself. So, so this templatized offering essentially, in some sense, simplifies, I don't want to use the word dumps because that has a pejorative meaning to it, but at least simplifies the access and the analytics that these non-experts can also get from our product. The other approach that I've also seen, you know, and then from our product is the ability for us to export uh, data from our product into other systems. So we have customers who export our data into into Tableau, into Click, into you know Looker, you know, so that they can start to slice and dice this data in somewhat different ways, which may be you know more in lines with what these personas may be used to and and may also want to see it. Right at the end of the day, we are in the business of getting insights from data, and to the extent that you know there are better, there are other systems. Systems that can that perhaps do some of this stuff. You know, we are more than happy to to export this data, to integrate this data into other systems. We also see some of our data science customers. You know, use notebooks and uh, Sumologic has a simple interface to to export our data into into data science notebooks where you can do other forms of analysis on this data, which may not be you know core to Sumologic, which may not be the focus area of Sumologic itself. So look, at the end of the day, right, I mean, we're in the business of getting best insights from our data for our customers, and we'll do our utmost to make that happen. Kalyan, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. 